This episode was recorded on June 10th. A lot's happened in the world since then. And here at SpexCast, we've decided to match donations to Campaign Zero or Black Girls Code. So if you donate to either of those organizations, send us a screenshot of your receipt on Twitter or by email, and we will match that donation uh, up to a total of $300. These two organizations are ones that we feel will make a difference. So join us in donating and making some change. Okay, on with the show. The views expressed here do not reflect the views of our respective employers. Hello and welcome to SpexCast, a podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. My name is Phil, and I'll be your host today alongside TJ. Hello. And Ferris. Hey there. Since December 2018, SpaceX has been developing their next generation spacecraft, Starship, at their facility in Boca Chica, Texas. The vehicle is so large that it is being constructed out in the open where enthusiasts have been able to watch construction progress from afar. On May 29th, Starship prototype serial number 4, or SN4, exploded in a massive fireball after a test. Today on SpexCast, we'll take a closer look at the incident and its impact on future development of Starship. And you can join the discussion by sending us a tweet at SpexCast or send an email to SpexCast at gmail.com. So let's start off with the fate of SN4. Uh, TJ, what happened? How do we know about it? SN4 was one of these prototype Starship test vehicles, and there was a lot of promise uh, of SN4 actually taking flight. Um, So SpaceX had had prior test articles that had failed pressure tests. This uh, test article had been pressurized several times. Uh, It had gone under cryo testing, um, and then it even had static fires. So they mounted a Raptor engine under it. They did three test fires with that engine and then uh, swapped it out for a newer engine, Raptor serial number 20, and they did two test fires. And so on the 29th, they had just finished the second test fire. And so kind of everyone watching was like, okay, well, they've, they've done the test fires. It's passed all these tests. Like it might actually do a hop off the pad. And apparently there was a a rapid disconnect valve that failed to close properly. So there was a leak at the base of the rocket and they caught that on the live stream. One of the people who are on site at Boca Chica recorded it. And then within 20 seconds, the entire thing exploded. Yeah. So uh, when you're talking about these pressure tests, what are they filling uh, the tanks with? Is it fuel? Is it oxidizer? Is it air, water? So there's been two kinds of tests. There have been uh, inert tests and actual fueling tests. So the first uh, inert test, they fill it with liquid nitrogen. So it's uh, non-combustible. It's still pretty cold, so they can test it at cryo temperatures, which is critical because the steel actually becomes stronger as it gets colder. Uh, But there's less chance of a fire. Uh, SpaceX has had prototypes that have exploded uh, due to pressure failure, and they've dumped liquid nitrogen on the ground, but there hasn't been an explosion or a fire afterwards. Yeah, so uh, this one exploded because there was a the valve that failed leaked uh, liquid oxygen onto the pad then? We're not sure if it was a liquid oxygen or liquid methane, but it it was during a fueling test that had 
both propellants. And so liquid methane and liquid oxygen, highly combustible. And when pressurized, they can explode. Yeah, after this happened, I watched the the clip of the video on the stream, and it's just a cloud of whiteness. And then all of a sudden, there's a fireball. And uh, slow-mo actually showed shrapnel and pressure waves uh, destroying ground support equipment. So like tanks around the pad and uh, other infrastructure was damaged by the explosion, uh, which is crazy. Uh, But this happened at a facility that was designed for this type of thing. Like everyone was prepared for a critical failure, a catastrophic failure to happen. So it wasn't really as, you know, dangerous. It's just really uh, probably going to set them back, not only because of the hardware that they built is now lost, but also the, the infrastructure surrounding it. I would say it's not a extreme danger of loss of life, but SpaceX did get really lucky. Uh, so their test pad is a couple of miles from the actual factory. And so when they do test flights, they have to truck it out there. They have to clear, close the road, clear out residents, have a safe space around the, the test site. But the actual concrete pad that the ship is on is not that far away from all the fuel tanks that hold the fuel to fill up the vehicle. And so there's a earthen um, berm between the tanks and the Stark ship. But... Uh, they're relatively close. And so it's pretty dangerous when something that large explodes. When you're looking at pictures of it, it looks proportionally not to be that big. It is taller than almost everything out there. But we're talking about something that's 18 feet across. It's very big. Yeah, Ferris, what was your reaction? How do you find out about it and stuff? I think as usual, the first thing that popped up on my feed was a Scott Manley video <laughs> about the situation. <laughs> right. He always has pretty good in-depth analysis on, on the cause of it. So, right off the bat, this slight disappointment. I was hoping for, for a hover test, um, and some. You know, I was hoping. You know, this would represent the Starship program moving forward, and and hitting another benchmark. You know, but we did we did get further than a lot of the other prototypes in terms of testing, static firing. Um, and so it, this is just, the, you know, to me, it's just the nature of kind of the fast iteration that SpaceX is doing on Starship. Yeah, let's get into the the pace that SpaceX has taken in, in terms of pursuing this Starship development. Um, every, you know, it seems like every day there's a new update, uh, either on Reddit or on Twitter, uh, about the construction or the design changes that are happening. But Surrounding serial number four specifically, what about uh, this particular Starship test article made it that much of a milestone besides it like being almost ready? Was it just the one that progressed the furthest or are there other factors that come into play to make this one in particular important? Every serial number Starship is an iteration that solves some kind of problem. And we've seen from the earliest starships, there was issues with the welds that were failing under pressure. And uh, they've iterated on that. They've done test tanks uh, that they've pressurized to make sure that's working. They've uh, worked on the thrust structure or the thrust puck, which is the steel structure at the bottom of the rocket that holds the engines and acts as the bottom of the tank. 
And so they've worked out all these uh, issues from a pressure vessel standpoint, but they've also been working on production issues, being able to produce more steel rings to build these starships quicker. They've been able to fabricate new nose cones and thrust structures and wings and all, all these different parts they are getting better and faster at doing that. And sometimes you don't, the only way to figure out something's not going to work is that if you, you do it and you see if the result matches your model, and then you can go back to the drawing board and, and change things. That said, uh, Elon's response uh, to the public, public's questions about um, serial number four and its predecessor, serial number three, both have failed. It seems like it's test configuration error. In the case of serial number three, uh, which is the predecessor to this one, also failed um, due to a configuration error, a testing configuration error. In the case of serial number three, it was a rapid loss of pressure causing it to implode. And this one um, is a different failure mode, but still seems to be a procedural error. So it, uh, what you talked about were design changes uh, in or, and manufacturing changes, but neither of those seem to be really the cause of these failures. Yeah, both of these issues uh, have ended up being uh, mainly attributed to some actions someone has done. And it's important not to blame that individual engineer or technician for the specific thing they did, because the system and the process around them let them do something that caused the vehicle to be destroyed, right? So, you know, something in the checklist was wrong or something in the uh, control panel in the software was wrong. Like these are, are issues that would have come up eventually, uh, even if the vehicle had been 100% structurally sound and, and ready to go. And so it sucks when you spend weeks or months building something literally from scratch, right? All of these are, are manufactured in tents in a field in Texas with hundreds of people working literally around the clock to build them. And you get, you know, within weeks or days of them actually taking off for the first time. And a single point of failure happens that scraps the whole thing. Right. I think that's a a, uh, a product of this rapid development where SpaceX is not only developing the design, but the manufacturing and the process all at once. Whereas if you maybe took a more uh, longer term or if you took a slower approach um, and we're very methodical about design first and then manufacture and then um, do the procedure or or something along those lines where the different aspects of construction are done asynchronously or are done serially. Here, they're all being done in parallel. So not only are they iterating at different rates, but they're interacting with each other. And it seems like they're all coupled together. That said, I mean... Design, development, it's moving extremely fast. Like, I don't know if it's because it's just public or because, you know, they're on it, but damn, like uh, every week a starship is different or another test is happening or another failure is happening. Like it's moving really fast. So if they slowed down, do you think they'd have less failures maybe? I wouldn't say if they wouldn't have... I would not say that by slowing down, they'd have less failures, but the where those errors would show up would be different 
but there are some errors that you only have present during a live test. And the more live tests you do, the quicker you're going to run into those errors and, and solve them and fix them. With regards to the procedures, um, you know, we talk about concepts of operations for space vehicles a lot. And there's high level concept of operations of how does this vehicle work in conjunction with the whole mission? And you can get very fine grained down to the literal p- paper or digital checklist that someone at the controls is going through right before launch. And it takes time and it's an art to design and, and test and verify those. Um, and so when you're making so many dynamic changes to the structural design and manufacturing design of something, it puts extra uh, pressure on the people writing the, literally writing the book and writing the manuals of how to fly a starship. And uh, I think these two issues have really shown that that side of the program has not been keeping pace. Things have slipped through, which the real determination is, is that okay? What do you think, Ferris? I think it's also important to note that we don't really know what caused SN4 to fail or to explode. It, it could be a wide array of issues. It could be a design issue, procedural issue, a test configuration issue. We know what caused SN3 to fail. And so yeah, I suppose all we can say is hopefully yes, the Starship program is learning new lessons and their improvements down the line for all the future Starships. What are your guys' thoughts on what, what this failure means or what it means to the program? Like, I guess, Phil. I don't even know. I can't judge the quality of engineering or I can't, ju- and I can't judge the production management decisions because I don't work for SpaceX. I'm not there every day. And uh, I don't even know the root cause for sure. You know, I'm, I'm saying from afar, uh, what seems to be along the lines of what's happening at SpaceX. But I think that if they want to use Starship to compete for contracts, so not just delivering their own cargo to space and delivering a bunch of Starlink satellites to space, but they've uh, won some money from NASA to use Starship in their human landing system to get humans to the moon. Uh, we talked about that in a previous episode, specifically on HLS. But that deadline that NASA has set is what, a year away, 10 months away for the first design iteration or the first milestone, and then astronauts on the surface of the moon in 2024. So having failures that are catastrophic and result in you know, a loss of a vehicle or damage to the test infrastructure does way more damage to their timeline than, you know, a failed test. So a failed test where it doesn't pass is way easier to recover from than a catastrophic failure where you can't even fix the hardware because it's in pieces. So, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I agree with you, at least in the terms of, like, we, we don't really know what's happening, you know, what goes in on, what goes on inside SpaceX and how Starship development is going, we don't really know very much about the particular cause of this failure. Although these failures definitely add to the timeline and with the 2024 deadline that, you know, there's now, there's now a deadline, right? But 
depending on how the program is managed, you do start your program with a bit of margin and with some expectations of failure and things to fall behind. I mean, that is maybe the only Yeah, but uh, someone being late to get their design in, through in planning. is different than having the whole vehicle explode on the path. No, that, that's fair. But it's also important to note that if you look at a lot of the components on the ground other than the Raptors, a lot of them seem to be quite quite affordable, right? We were talking about steel panels, um, a lot of welded components, and we're talking about pressure vessels. And just given the fact that SpaceX does have a, a Starship factory, it seems to it seems that there is an expectation uh, that that rapid iteration is going to be necessary, and there is the infrastructure to iterate. If we were talking about something that was built with composite materials, we might be talking about longer timelines and costlier failures. And one of the challenges that SpaceX now has with Starship is there are now multiple timelines for the program. SpaceX has an internal uh, development timeline that I'm sure is very aggressive. And then they have an external timeline that they have promised uh, NASA as part of the human launch system program. And then there's also Elon's tweets. And so the actual deadlines and the actual expectations uh, are somewhere in the middle across of those. But with the HLS contract, SpaceX has been given money to develop the program for 10 months. So they're only guaranteed 10 months of development before a potential down selection happens. And I'm sure Elon Musk and SpaceX would really love to be locked in for the next three years with funding for Starship. And these 10 months are critical. So this period is really where SpaceX needs to prove that their their landing system for the moon is by far the most complicated. It by far has the most moving parts and it requires an entire new launch system to be developed. Plus refueling starships plus the lunar version of starship and it's very ambitious and has a lot of promise but spacex really needs to not um ignore the risk or change their plans to mitigate the risk but to do the development to do the testing to resolve some of that risk right if they can come to nasa in the end of 10 months it's like hey like we've we've have a full prototype of starship that can go to suborbital and do landing like that's a huge step towards building a lunar version of Starship. And then they can say like, we've already got the second stage mostly working We're we're building the first super heavy potentially. And we have this momentum. If in 10 months, they're still trying to get a hop off the ground because they've lost one or two more test articles, then it's going to be a much harder sales pitch to NASA for them to continue in the program. And the next phase of the program is potentially a lot more money than what SpaceX got for this first award. So do you think that losing more test articles only hurts them in the sense of it hampers them from uh, proving a demonstration that meets NASA's expectation? Or do you think that like having test articles fail in itself, like uh, hurts their reputation with NASA as far as the contract goes? So for to, to clarify, if SpaceX does at the end of the 10 months launch a a starship with a suborbital flight and a propulsive landing but along the way loses let's say two more vehicles do you think that um they'd be in the same spot 
with NASA's contract for HLS than they would be if they had not lost any more test articles? I think what we're seeing from NASA is a very results-driven approach to the contract. And if SpaceX can get stuff done at the end of 10 months, and there might have been a couple fireballs along the way, I don't think it's going to negatively impact them. But when you blow up a test article right before it's about to make a test flight, and you destroy the test stand, you have to fabricate a new one and upgrade equipment, you know, even at the incredible pace SpaceX has been moving at, that's a multiple week delay. I think at the end of the day, those delays really will hit your bottom line, right? So if you're trying to meet those deadlines and your articles are gone, you don't meet those deadlines anymore. Uh, so moving forward with SpaceX's development, SN4 is gone, SN3 is gone. What What's next for them? Are they building another Starship to replace it? And what's the next test we expect to see? So the silver lining with the explosion of SN4 is that the rocket factory that SpaceX has built is the rocket factory that SpaceX has built has started to show that it's working correctly and consistently. So while SN4 was on the test pad doing static fires, SN5, its follow-up was being stacked in the high bay and components for SN6 were being fabricated. And as a recording, SN5 is about to be moved to a brand new test stand that's ready to go. Uh, And so the actual downtime has been less than two weeks, which is fantastic. With that said, SN5 still needs to complete pressure testing and static fires before it can conduct the first 150 meter hop. And then SN6 and follow-ups will have to continue to push that higher and higher. And once they get into high altitude, they need to refine actually landing it using the unique Starship landing maneuver. So there's a bunch of challenging flight operations they have to do once they're able to get these things off the ground consistently. SpaceX has really put a lot of effort and resources behind building the infrastructure to be able to iterate and test. They've done that with the expectation that they're going to fail. And that is now paying dividends back allowing them to fail and still keep moving fast. And so we're, we're starting to see that you know, happen. All right. I think that wraps up this episode of SpecsCast on SpaceX's serial number four uh, test article for Starship and its unfortunate fate. <laughs> um, We've been following Starship development very closely What are your thoughts on the pace that SpaceX has been moving in manufacturing these vehicles and testing these vehicles? And do you think that this pace is sustainable when so many of these test vehicles have been failing either for operational reasons or structural and design reasons? Let us know on Twitter. Let's keep this discussion going after the episode ends. Tweet at SpecsCast or send an email to SpecsCast at gmail.com. And who knows, we might read your letter on the show. All right. Thanks for listening. And uh, you can find more articles about space news and space science and technology on our blog, blog blog.spexcast.com. And find our whole backlog of episodes on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and now YouTube. So uh, be sure to subscribe for the future ones. And let's keep this space discussion going. Our music is by Nelson Scott.